0: Well, I could use a little snack. The usual? You read my mind. Tell the boys behind you.
1: All right. Hello. Are you hungry back there, boys? I
0: thought you'd never ask.
1: Me. Good. We're we'll going to Burger World.
0: Arkansas world, right?
2: Hey, you got a problem with Burger World?
0: Drive off to the
2: clouds.
1: It's the burger world. How dee biddy we dee dee dee. The fries look crispy, the creamy are
0: creamy, the double cut melts with cheese and dreamy. Charred rotting flesh ate my idea of a good meal. We are the village
1: green.
0: Preservation Society. God save
1: Donald Duck, Bonneville and Variety. We are the
2: Desperate Dan Appreciation Society. God save Strawberry Jam and all the different varieties. Serving the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. What more can we do?
0: The Draft beer Preservation Society. God save Mrs. Fox and Lord Mother Right. We are the custom pie appreciation consortium. God save the George Cross and all those who are loving them.
2: Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. And now. Here he is, the Remus to my Romulus, the Chong to my Cheech, the Mini (laughs) to my driver, Teal. How's it going, buddy?
0: Oh, man, Cheech and Chong. (laughs) I haven't seen those movies uh, really since the 80s.
2: Those were kind of the forbidden fruit. When I was a kid, I was like, I don't know what these movies are about, (laughs) but I know I'm not allowed to see them when I want to because I can't.
0: Exactly. And then somehow I, you know, got them from the video store.
2: How I got to see them was one summer, my sister went away to Girl Scout camp for a couple of weeks, and both the Cheech and Chong and Cheech and Chong's next movie were playing as a double feature, The Drive-In. Okay. And my parents thought, ah, you know what? He's old enough. He can see these. <laughs> and we went and saw them. And I was like, uh, you know, that's pretty funny. Pretty, pretty funny stuff. So. <laughs> Uh, But I was never a big Cheech and Chong movie guy I don't think I've seen all of the films No, I think I saw maybe two or three Yeah, I saw those two And then Nice Dreams was like the classic
0: Oh, Nice Dreams (laughs) Yeah (laughs) <laughs> and then they made that Corsican Brothers movie That's where I dropped out I was out after that
1: Yeah, the Corsican <laughs> Brothers Because I didn't quite understand
2: I'm like, well, how does that whole thing work? In, you know, But I'm sure they made it work But yeah, I remember them all And uh, I'm surprised in the whole reboot world They never got those two back together Though I think they may have had a falling out Maybe, I don't know Maybe, I, yeah,
0: I, something Okay, I yeah I can't
2: believe they didn't make one, you know, later in life or or a or a Netflix <laughs> limited
0: series. <laughs> yeah, so and they were directed by Tommy Chong. Oh, were they? Yeah.
2: Well, now there's a piece of info I did not know. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, before we spend too much time in this rabbit hole.
2: Yeah, let's not spend any more time in that rabbit (laughs) hole. (laughs) I'm trying to dig myself out of that one. Yeah, you know, today we have a guest. Uh, This is kind of going to be a a fascinating thing. With all of this, uh, the pandemic happening, and a lot of people are, you know, they're talking about various industries and how they've been affected and, you know, we know, obviously, Hollywood, they are not uh, shooting anything right now, right? I guess Mickey Rourke somehow found a way to get his movie what? shot. <laughs> yeah, Mickey Rourke, like, was shooting something out, like, in Siberia some, like, weird weird land. And they found <laughs> a way to, like, you know, finish up because, you know, the the everyone's waiting for that <laughs> movie. Um, but, but, <laughs> but aside from that, everything shut down. And uh, that's an industry where the people... You know, there's always like the big actors and, and you know, A-list directors and stuff. People are probably like super millionaires and everyone thinks, well, you know, eh, they just wait a few months and they'll be all back to work and everything's fine. They can just wait out in their mansions. But the majority of people that work in Hollywood are just you know they this is their job like any other job and they work long hours and they it may not be 100% steady there may be periods where they work very hard for a series of months and then they may be off for a few weeks or how, however long waiting to get their next gig and this is could be a very large impact on them because this might have been a period where they were expecting to work or in the middle of a project and now they're without any income. So how are those people surviving? And with me, and UTIL, we have a guest today. Uh, This this person is somebody that I went to NYU with. We both worked in the photo department, uh, which is the, uh, I guess, the photo school at uh, Tisch School of the Arts. And I can't remember, he was either a photo major first and then became a film major, or he was a film major first and then he became a photo major. That he's going to have to tell us but he's been working out in the industry uh, in uh, Hollywood for many, many years. And he's a camera operator and a first AC. He's worked on numerous film and television projects. Uh, some of his credits, uh, he has numerous ones, but just a couple that you might know. Uh, he, he's worked on Grace and Frankie. And he's worked on The Orville. And he worked on House. And a couple of films that he's been involved in. He worked uh, in some capacity on 3K years ago, and he even did a little film work on the, the big movie Titanic. Uh, so without further ado, a welcome our guest, uh, Tony Gutierrez. Tony, are you there? Hey,
0: it's Tony, the On the away, on
1: the Tiger. I am here. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you? We are good.
0: Yeah, after our Cheech and Chong detour. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Have you seen those movies, Tony?
1: I I had, yeah, like you, I had seen them many, many years ago in like high school or college and I have long since forgotten about them. And uh, (laughs) as as usual, you guys bring back a lot of memories, stuff I've long forgotten about. So, yeah.
2: I want to refresh Teal's memory for a second. So I've mentioned Tony in the past on this show. So this is the most fascinating thing. Tony, if I get this right, he is a big John Carpenter fan. Oh, but, yes. But he's oh, never yeah. seen Halloween, which is his most famous movie.
1: <laughs> and I still haven't seen it. I, I, even <laughs> since our last conversation, when we talked about you know movies that you were ashamed to admit you haven't seen – and I still haven't gotten around to seeing it. It's, it's it's sitting here in my stack of stuff to see, and I still have – I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but
2: that's to me <laughs> so fascinating things. that you would find a director so influential to you, and yet the most uh, <laughs> famous of his films, the one that really kicked it off for the guy.
1: Honestly, I think the reason – I honestly think the reason why is because it permeates our, our culture so deeply, and, and I feel like I've seen – although in clips and out of order, probably every major scene in the film. I just haven't seen the film in its entirety from beginning to end. So I kind of think it's like, ah, oh, I'll watch it later. I'll watch this first. <laughs> or I'll watch that first. And it just it just never gets to the top of the stack for some reason. I don't know why that is because it's, it's
0: always there somehow. So you can always watch it. So why watch it now?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> you are right in that to watch that film now It has been so part of the fabric of uh, of of moviedom that it's not fresh. Um, And I I I watched it not too long ago. It was my oldest son's first time watching it, and you know it isn't. It is so tame by today's Mm -hmm. standards. It is
0: so tame. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
2: but there's still craftsmanship, and then you have to watch it with the lens of going. There are things that are done in this film, just from a filmmaking standpoint, and the way the cameras uh, used and operated that hadn't been done in a movie before.
1: And it's it's a lot like watching Psycho. It's the exact same experience, I think. And and we we last summer had a first annual family film festival at our house with my kids, and one and the the list of movies were movies that. Movies that everyone must see. Like if you're a fan of of fantasy science fiction film or just a fan of film, you must see... These are films that everyone must see and like I'd be ashamed as a parent if my kid hadn't (laughs) seen Psycho. So, it's like we're going to watch Psycho and you know, we had talked about it for many years leading up to it and so, we finally watched it. So, I had the same setup. It's like you have to understand this was the first time this was done, films weren't like this before. Blah blah. and uh, so, yeah, you kind of have to watch it through that same lens. Uh,
0: what so, else was on the list for that festival?
1: <laughs> I was afraid you're going to ask that question. So we <laughs> watched uh, we watched uh, I have to remember we watched The Thing. We watched.
2: Now you're talking Carpenter's The Thing, right?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. W- w- Carpenter's The Thing. We watched um, Blade Runner. Uh, most A lot of them were science fiction fantasy right. films.
2: So, those are films that probably were influential to you growing up, I'd
1: imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still, um, the original, of course yeah um uh movies like that um there were there were a handful that were not science fiction films that were just films of of general interest that again that's like these are these are important films
0: yeah i i did that a little bit with one of my kids a couple years ago and you know we watched like raiders of the lost ark and back to the future sort of like 80s classics
1: so so we watched psycho the thing close encounters planet of the apes logan's run blade runner Forbidden Planet, Tron, Terminator, Robocop, and The Shining.
0: Nice.
1: <laughs> and so my kids, for reference, my kids are a little bit older. There, I have one one who's a freshman in high school, and one who just graduated. She, so they're a little older. Yeah, a little bit older, so yep, you know, little bit not, older than
0: mine. Yeah. I, I don't think my kids could quite handle RoboCop yet. Yeah.
1: Well, one oh, of them walked out. But- <laughs> 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 my you know, Now that you
2: say RoboCop, my oldest is what I never think about that. He is going to love RoboCop. He loves Starship Troopers. so.
0: Oh, yeah. He will yeah. He'll love RoboCop. But yeah. it is. Uh, it's, it, I mean, maybe it's. It, we were talking about how tame some of these movies are by today's standards like Halloween. But RoboCop is still pretty gory.
1: Yeah, well, for me personally, it holds up. It's it's on my top ten favorite movies of all time. But um, yeah, me too. I crazy, love that movie. Oh, okay, good.
2: So, Tony, were you a film major first at NYU, and then you worked in the photo department? But then towards the end, you actually switched over to the photo department. Am I right on that? Neither,
1: actually. What? I was, all, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was always I was always a photomate a film major. Excuse me. I was always a film major. I transferred, started my sophomore year at NYU. And so the first thing I did was try to grab a work study job down in the film department and all of those jobs were taken. So I settled for the photo department. There was an opening in the photo department. And I went to work on the photo department and it was the best thing that had ever happened. It was the best decision I ever made because I got so much out of the photo department, as you know. I mean, the, what I discovered was that the film students were all about producing you know, it was all uh, the the hustle of, of getting your film made, you know, getting locations right. and getting people to help you and, you know, how to tie in to get um, there, everything Was what cameras you were going to get. It was all about the production of your film. And in the photo department, you know, you take away all of that. All that was left was was really the image, the art. Right. You know, was, right. How to how to tell this story with a single frame, how, how to convey a, a, an emotion or, an, or a message or, or whatever you were trying to convey. And. and that was far more fascinating than, and, and far more satisfying as I think any artist would find, you know? And, and so the photo department was all about that. And, and not to mention, then I got to work in the cage, you know, and, and which was the, you know, the equipment dispensary and we, we, you know, James and I and others like Fred Robertson and other people there, and we well maintained the labs and interacted with the faculty and, and, uh, and the rest of the staff and, and the other students. And, um, it was immensely satisfying. So I, I got, I got such a great photographic education in the three years that I spent there that it was like I was a photo major, but uh, I was never officially a photo
2: major. Yeah, I always thought of myself as an honorary member, um, and I liked it from the standpoint that it exposed me to a different group of kids that I would not have been exposed to if I had just stayed within the realms of the film department.
1: And I actually had the same question about you, because I couldn't remember, was James a photo major or a film <laughs> Good, major?
2: Goodness, no. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I didn't know how to do anything in the photo department other than change the chemistry. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I was a film major as well. And then you graduated. I graduated in 92. Did you graduate the same year? I feel like I you- did. Yeah,
1: okay. I did, Yeah. It's just funny that we never had any I don't remember having classes
2: together. No we, we that was the thing is we never crossed paths what once in film school but we worked together I, at various times in the photo cage because you know obviously different years different schedules um, but there was probably the first year that I got to NYU which I think is the same as you. we actually worked together um, yes. for certain shifts and then after you graduate, what did you do? How did, how do you get from there to, to California?
1: So my um, wife and I lived in New York uh, and uh, we both, as you know, we both went to school. We were dating at the time that we got married. And um, so we lived in New York for one more year. My wife, I was working as a non-union focus puller um, on short films and music videos and the odd commercial here and there in, in New York city. And my wife was working as a reader for Universal in New York. And her boss uh, was a producer named Julia Chasman. And she had uh, an opportunity to take a position for uh, at Universal in LA. I don't remember if they were closing the New York office or or if they just wanted to move her to LA. I, I can't remember. But so one day I got a, he, my wife paged me, I had to call her back. And she said, uh, you're going to fly to California uh, and find us an apartment because we're moving. And I'm like, what? And she said, Jul- <laughs> Julia got a job in LA, and she said, if 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 we want to move to LA, that uh, we're welcome to go, and we've got a job there, so we're going. <laughs> it's like, so before I knew it, I was on a plane flying out to California and looking for an apartment, and um, then uh, we we basically followed her boss out to out to Hollywood, and uh, and uh, so my wife started had a full time job, and that allowed me to. Um, kind of get my feet, uh, get on my feet here in California with, you know, um, meeting new people and starting to work here. So I did the same thing. I worked as a non-union focus puller, eventually got into the union as a loader, spent a few years as a loader. By the end of the 90s, I was back up to focus puller and I stayed a focus puller for a long, for, for the rest of my career until about three years ago. And then I became, uh, I moved up officially to camera operator and, I, then, and then that's what I've been doing since then.
2: Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, very cool. You know, again, if you look at the IMDb, you have a credit on Titanic, but it says, you, well, it, it says you worked uncredited on Titanic. What did you? What did you do there on that movie?
1: <laughs> I think everybody in Hollywood worked on Titanic. It was such a massive <laughs> project. <laughs> right. Well, I, I what I did was pretty cool actually, and I was really bummed when I finally saw the film and they they listed everybody on my unit except me. That's so. That's I, awesome. I, I don't know how that happened. But what I did was actually really cool. They shot – before they started principal photography, they were building the, – they were still building the, uh, the ship in Mexico, at, at, uh, in the stages in Mexico. And um, uh, they started – they built the submerged staterooms in a giant uh, Navy – former Navy test tank in Escondido, California. And so, so it's a giant tank where they would test – Think of it as like a wind tunnel, but for right. submarines, huh. right? So, so they would test submersibles and other, other things in this giant tank. They converted the tank. They, they you know, they emptied it. They built the, the, the sunken stateroom set uh, in the tank, filled it with water. And then we filmed, so it was uh, James Cameron, the DP at the time.
2: Russell Carpenter, or? no,
1: no, it's Caleb Deschanel at the beginning, oh, and then, oh, and, then no. and then yeah, for for I think for the first several, he got fired. Um, I think when they were in Canada in Nova Scotia. So this was before that. So it was it was Caleb Deschanel, uh, Al Al Giddings, Cam, James Cameron, and then a video guy. So the four people that were in the water and they were uh, so they had their film cameras in the water and they had one camera assistant topside, which was me. And my responsibility was that so they would they would film, they would come back to the surface. I would grab the camera, I'd remove it from the underwater housing, reload the camera, stick it back in the underwater housing, and hand it back off to them again. And that's all I did for for it was like two days of work. And it was all of the material, the present day material of them, of oh, the okay. RO, with the ROV going into the staterooms. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, so yes, fi- yes. Finding the finding the safe. Uh, you know, recovering the safe. It's when they recover the the necklace from the safe. It's all that stuff at the beginning. It was pretty impressive. I was, I mean, I was still fairly young as a focus puller. I had only recently re-rated back to focus puller back to first assistant. So, and it was a, you know, it was a huge, it was by far the biggest production I had ever been on at the time. And I was super nervous, you know, but um, it was really impressive. And, 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 Cameron was pretty impressive, too. I mean, it was, it was This one story I like to tell was uh, there were before we started shooting, the props department had laid out all of this china that was going to be strewn across the uh, floor of the ocean in the set uh, at the bottom of this tank. And uh, they he was evaluating the china sets. And I heard him mention that this was the wrong china because it was it was the right China pattern, but it was on the wrong. It would not have been on that floor. It would have been on a different floor. Oh my <laughs> so, so, so I was pretty impressed. It was like he, you know, there was no detail that uh, could escape. Could, could escape. Wow. It was pretty impressive. Yeah. Well,
2: that's something I'm always talking about. Is that the movies that have those types of details? Your your regular viewer will never know. However. <laughs> It's a subconscious thing that when those when those details aren't there, you know you're watching a movie that is trying to set something in the period, but it doesn't really feel real.
1: That's almost exactly word for word what my mother used to say to me, too. And we would have these discussions. My mom, you know, when I was growing up, she was – that's the reason why I fell in love with movies with my mother. And we had lots of long conversations about stuff like this. And she would often argue the exact same thing. So my dad was a cop. And – when you're, when you're around a real cop versus like a movie cop, you know, yeah, a guy who's right. just an extra, comes from central casting, and they dress him up in a, in a uniform. You know, the way they walk and the way they stand and the way they hold themselves, the way they get off their motorcycle, it's just, you can tell they're not real, you know. and right. And that's the kind of thing, she said, nobody would ever really know, but I know. And she says, I can't help but think that on a sub sort of a subconscious level other people know as well you know yeah and i think and i think what she's talking about in that particular case is the actor how they feel it's like you can tell that they don't believe it themselves but even on a more subconscious level i think details like what you're talking about jim i think that that comes through as well
2: yeah my wife she works in uh at a hospital she's a nurse practitioner and you know the almost 15 years that I've known her. That's, that's the thing, anything that has to do with medical. She's like, Oh, that's so ridiculous, sir. That's a, that's <laughs> not right. Or they would never do that. Like it's just, yep. you know, when you know your own craft and trade, yep. those things in movies stick out.
1: Speaking of RoboCop, I just, I just rewatched it recently. And uh, I was watching a, um, I just got a new version of it on Blu-ray and I had all these extras and I was watching the commentary and the right, one of the writers was talking about that scene when Murphy is after he's, um, you know murdered and they take him to the hospital. Yeah. Those were all real those were all real Dallas emergency medical professionals. Oh, and they just wow. let them, they just let them they just they just set the scene and they filmed it and they let them do their own dialogue and the writer was like I could have never written any of this cuz I didn't know what they do and anything I would have written I just would have stolen from other TV shows and movies <laughs> right. and uh, so I think that that's another case in point it's why the scene kind of works so well
2: Tony, how do you get your jobs do you have to have do you have a manager and agent for even what you do or is it just becomes like a word of mouth and and knowing people
1: it's a word of mouth and knowing people yeah there's for any craft level below cinematographer some camera operators, Steadicam operators still have agents, but fewer and fewer of them have agents. But it's pretty much anybody below cinematographer um, okay, or or I don't even know if gaffers have agents. I've never heard of a gaffer <laughs> having an agent, but they might. I, I just don't know. But, you know, anyone below cinematographer, they, they don't have agents. So, they're word of mouth. Uh, the union doesn't help you get jobs. Uh, it's all word of mouth and and networking and uh, and
2: that kind of thing yeah and amongst the many concerns that happen with the pandemic is a lot of people are out of work and there are various resources that people are going to go to get their next job when when things end cuz some of these people are not going to get that job back they're not furloughed they're, they're off jobs but someone like you you know this is an industry you're built on your connections and finding out the gigs when everything shuts down i suppose that the concern is that when it comes back you don't want to be forgotten
1: well i think the concern is really deeper than that to be honest with you um in some respects this is just like any other and there any other delay and yeah, and from a personal perspective this is just like any other little unintended hiatus you know um, we've all been in situations where we've lost our job where the show got you know i've been on a show where you know we had 10 episodes left and they the producers came in at lunch and said They pulled the plug, enjoy your lunch, pack up the trucks and go home. Thank you for, you know, thank you for everything. Right. Yeah. And and other shows where, you know, we did a season and um, then everyone expected to come back and they didn't bring the show back or the DP got fired. So we don't come back or you know, or even me personally, you know, where where it just does not work out. And, and right. I've been asked not to come back. So, I mean, it's happened to everybody. Yeah. In some respects, this is just like any other time, but it's the other end of this that is really scary right now. No one really knows what production is going to look like when it finally does come back. And I think it's going to be a quite a long time before it does come back.
0: Yeah. So it's not like, a writer strike or something. Right. You know, th- th- there have been these sort of industry shutdowns before over things like that.
1: That's uh, absolutely
2: right. You know, something interesting just happened literally today as things are in my state are starting to reopen. I got an email from my kid's orthodontist. And, you know, they they have appointments in June and, of course, the office has been closed, but they're getting ready to open up. However, at the end of that, it's like, oh, we're looking forward to seeing you. We're all in this together, all that other crap, right? And then at the end, there's a waiver that they've added (laughs) <laughs> saying that... Uh,
0: yep, sorry I'm laughing. But
2: that, hey, you know, you're going to come back, but we want to make sure that you understand there's always a risk mm-hmm. and sign it up to make sure that we're not responsible. And now, as you're talking, at some point, they're going to reopen things and productions mm-hmm. are going to start. And obviously... There's an amount of risk involved everybody coming together, going to different locations, a lot of things that are intangibles you can't control. And I can see studios wanting to, uh, you know, no responsibility if you get something, mm-hmm. but let's open it all up. But now you have something where you have a union and I can just see there's going to be some clashes or conflicts there.
1: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. I think that, um, ultimately it's going to come down to a waiver. I think that, you know, the union's priority is always worker safety and, and, uh, um, that's always been our priority and more so now than ever. But, um, Everyone knows that production, I mean, we have to get back to work. That just has to happen. You know, studios need to start producing. People need. I mean, it's just the economy has to get rolling and, and we all have to go back to work. We all want to go back to work. Ultimately, what they're going to do is, is to do as much as they possibly can. We have to sign off on the fact that there, nothing can be 100% safe and uh, we're all right. going to incur a certain amount of risk. And if we want the job we're going to have to sign on the bottom you know sign that sign the side letter that says the studio or or the producers are not responsible if we get sick and that's ultimately what's going to have to come down to i think and honestly it's really not very different from any other situation it's not very different from me climbing into a car with the actor driving and and, and the camera and uh and them saying okay i'm sorry
0: yeah there is some risk involved generally
1: yeah exactly i really i think that's what it's going to be but my show is a great example. I mean, we had we have four eighty plus year old actors on the show. And right. As, as much as I know that Jane Fonda wants to finish the show, I mean, her more than anybody I know. She's she wants to finish the show. Right. She of all people really wants to see it through to the end. And they planned sixteen episodes for the final season as opposed to twelve. But at the same time, it's like, how do you? How much risk is there to have? You know,
0: well, yeah. And also, I mean, uh, we we don't know yet what this is going to look like uh, going forward in terms of how it's changing our society. But it's very possible that everyone's going to be need to be wearing a mask for a while.
1: Yeah. The other problem, too, is that there's almost no way to reduce the number of people that are on set at any one time. Right. See, my cam, my show is always two cameras. Um, but even if you went to one camera, that's only reducing reducing one camera operator, one focus puller, one second yeah. assistant, and one dolly grip. That's only four people. There's still going to be you know thirty other people or more on on the on the stage at any one time. I mean, there's there's no way to really reduce. You know, you have the you have the boom operator. You have, you know the, I mean you have everybody standing on set uh, outside of the per, uh, right, right right off set in the course of producing the show. So I don't really know how you could do that. I mean, I I would assume that everybody will have to be wearing masks when they're working and right. they'll do their best to keep things clean, but um yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And what do you do about lunch breaks? You know, does everybody break right. at the same time and they all sit together to eat? And what do they do about locations when they have to have multiple extras on location? I mean, you know, you do scenes where there's 50, 60, 100 300 extras, you know, and you know, how had, had, I had, did a basket did a basketball show and you know, they had the 300 extras sitting in the stands right. and you know, what do you do about all those things, you know? So that that's it's going to be really it's going to be a real challenge.
2: Uh, well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. Is we talk a lot about movies and what we're watching, but when we take it a, you a know, step back, they have to get created and A lot of people know like all big productions, but they don't really think about it. And then when we take it to this level of the pandemic, this isn't a job where, well, we can have certain people working from home. (laughs) That doesn't work. Uh, The writers guess good.
0: (laughs) I have some friends that are editors and they've been working from home because they had a backlog, but now it's drying up.
2: Yeah, I have an
1: editor friend, the exact same thing. He finished his episode, and then, and then that's it. But, you know, there's also travel, too. You know, I don't know yeah. what travel is going to be like, but, you know, does that mean that working on location, a remote location, is even more challenging than before? Is it less challenging? Is it better because you're not in Los Angeles? Or is it worse right. because you have to fly everybody in and all the equipment in? And, and you yeah, know, there's a lot of questions I have about that. And, I mean, I remember after 9-11, I was on a yeah. show – Right after 9-11 and the show shut down for for months because there people who were stuck overseas and couldn't get back in. And and uh-huh. uh, I, I just imagine it's kind of like that, except it's just going to last longer. You know, tra- we don't really know what travel is going to look like right now.
0: We don't. Well, there, yeah, there, there's so many things we don't know what they're going to look like. And it's going to affect all these things in ways we can't can't predict right now.
2: You know, you've been in the industry now for many, many years and. I'm sure at the beginning, like when you worked, you know, even just a couple of days on the Titanic, you know, it's probably a little bit of mind blowing and kind of a bit of an awe and ex- experience. But now you've been around so many projects. Is it when you go to... Work, do you, you know, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, Jane Fonda as if like, hey, Jane Fonda is any other person. I mean, to someone like myself, I'd probably be like, ah, I can't believe I'm in front of Jane Fonda talking. <laughs> uh, but is that kind of glamour of it all kind of way behind you now and you just go and it's a job? Or is there still a little bit of magic when you're on set with some of these, you know, big larger than life celebrities?
1: It's funny. I've had this discussion many times with many people uh, and we all I think we all have the same reaction it's both if you're going to be honest it's really both because everybody has you know i i've 1992 is really when i started working professionally so it's it's been a long time you know it's
2: yeah almost 30 years yeah
1: exactly and so i would be lying if i said that uh that it's still glamorous uh but i'd also be lying if i said i was jaded because it's it's definitely not it just depends on who you meet you know i mean right I mean, I, I I feel privileged every single day that I was on that I'm on Grace and Frankie because I'm working with with four outstanding legendary actors, and I love them all. They're right. the whole the whole cast. Everybody in the cast is awesome, and this and it's not an exaggeration. I, it's not hyperbole. They're all awesome. But you know, sometimes you're just looking through the frame, and you're like, wow, that's that's Jane Fonda in my frame. You know, it's, <laughs> that's it's pretty, pretty cool. Amazing, you that's know, I mean. it's Martin Sheen. You know, and, and and they're all wonderful, but. You're, you're not, you don't feel giddy or, you you know, you just, it's right. just, this part of the job. However, one time I'm looking through the frame and you see Patrick Stewart and you're like, oh my God, that's Patrick Stewart. And, then, <laughs> and you finally shake his hand and you're like, can I get a picture with you? And, you know, and you listen, you're really nervous. And, and it just depends on who it is, you know. So everybody has their own heroes. And a long, long, long time ago... I, I met somebody that I never thought I would meet in the film business, and that was Ray Bradbury.
2: Oh wow! And, oh
1: wow! And I was so blown away that that I, I was just day playing on this um, little Disney movie that he had, it was a script that he wrote based on a short that he had done, and this was in the late '90s, and uh, it was I was there for about two weeks, and. When I found out what the project was and, and uh, you know, you get a call for the job and you just show up. You don't really ask questions. They're like, hey, right. can you come in tomorrow? And you're like, okay, yeah, sure. Tell me where to go and time to be there. So you show up, you get your bag and you bring your stuff. And, and uh, so when you're there, you know, you get the call sheet and you look in the call sheet. And you just, the first thing you look at is who else is on your crew in your camera department. So you say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I don't know these people or whatever you go to your camera and you start getting things ready and you don't really ask a lot of questions. And then, you know, when things sort of settle down, you're like, so what are we doing? What is this? And like, oh, well, you know, this is, you know, and so they tell you about it and they're like, oh, it's just Disney. It's a Disney, blah, blah, blah. And I said it was written by Ray Bradbury. I'm like, what? And then I look at the call sheet and you say, it's like screenwriter Ray Bradbury. I'm like, holy cow. And they said, yeah, sometimes he's here. And I'm like, oh my God, really? And so for me, Ray Bradbury was just, I mean, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how, you know, much I love Ray Bradbury and and how important he was to me, as, especially as a kid. So you know, I got a copy of the script and I stuck it in my bag. So maybe he'll show up while I'm here. And sure enough, <laughs> one that we're we're in East LA, and it's it's about two or three o'clock in the morning because we were doing all nights. And I look up and there he is. He's sitting in a chair and has a big mane of white hair. You know, he's kind of hunched over. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so great, <laughs> fucking Ray Bradbury. You know, so I uh, I walked up. So I'm going to get him to sign my script you know, and I walked up and, and, you know, you never know what they're going to, you never know how they're going to react, you know, never meet your heroes. That's what they say. Right. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes you're disappointed, you know, when you see somebody that you really like. But most of the time, you know, people are pretty nice. And, and he w- he was such a gentleman, and I was so nervous. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, I've been <laughs> doing it for a while now. I was like, And I was like, oh, this is no big deal. So I'm, and i was like, oh my God, I was so unprepared for how nervous <laughs> I was going to be. And uh, so it it just depends, you know, and uh, just depends on who you meet.
2: On the Grace and Frankie, the, on your crew, the cinematographer is uh, Gail Tattersall. And mm-hmm. he, there's a couple of Gail Tattersalls out there, but this Gail Tattersall is the one mm-hmm. who was a cinematographer on one of my all-time favorite movies, The Commitments. And mm-hmm. I think you, I don't know if you worked at, overlapped with him uh, on House, but I think he also did some cinematography on House too, right?
1: He did. He was the that's how, that's where we met. He was the DP on uh, on House the last four or five seasons on House. I, I don't remember. He he was there before I started. I was called in as a day player. And uh, and that's where we first met, yeah. And so we, we, we got to know each other, and um, I got called in because Gail is a big Canon fan, and he was one of the first cinematographers to start using the 5D. I don't know if you remember the, the, yeah. the, all the rage of using the Canon 5D when it first came out. And uh, he embraced it and uh, started using it on house as, as, a, as an extra camera, you know. So he, he liked oh, okay. to call it the... He liked to call it the ninja cam because it was really low profile. He could put a long lens on it. and He could stick it in a corner or stick it between two cameras or, or, and he could have it grab things that you wouldn't normally spend a lot of time doing. You know, you have so much material to get on any given day, sometimes grabbing inserts or grabbing extra looks from reaction shots from other actors who aren't talking or, you know, things like that. Sometimes are so time consuming that you just, you just don't have time to do it. You end up skipping it. And they're great for editorial. So, he liked to use it for that purpose. And then he finally convinced, uh, they finally had a script that he thought, I was not involved in this project, but I was around day playing when it was happening, that he thought would be perfect to shoot the entire episode or, or if I'm most of the episode on on the 5D. Oh, and okay. uh, and so, so anyway, the, the, the reason I'm telling you that is because camera assistants hated it. Because it was notoriously difficult to pull focus on. It, it was oh. notoriously the depth of field was extremely shallow. But in addition to that, the out the video output from it was in standard def, not in high def. The, the oh reco- wow! The recording, the, you know, it would record full high definition. But but when you're watching in real time on a monitor, which is the only way you could pull focus on it, because the lenses are 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 still photo lenses. They're not cine lenses. So yeah, they're yeah. not marked. Yeah. So, they're not marked with with footage markers that are extremely right. accurate. So, you could just run a tape measure and pull them. So you had to pull off a monitor. And this was still at the sort of the beginning of, of the HD transition where camera assistants were really reluctant to pull off, of a, off a monitor. I, for reasons that are also really too long to explain, have been <laughs> doing it now for a while. And so, I got a call and, and uh, my, the camera assistant who called me my friend, Dan Urbane, he said, I uh, said, do you know the 5D? And I said, yeah. And he said, are, are, would you be willing really to come in and do it? He said, nobody wants to do it. And I'm like, yeah, I'll come in and do it. So, I went in and I did it and I embraced it. And so, I formed a relationship with Gail because I actually I actually didn't mind doing it where every other camera assistant would just want to throw it in the trash and just <laughs> refuse to to work with it. So, <laughs> so, because of that, I formed a relationship with Gail. And uh, afterwards, we kept in touch and, you know, he did some other projects. And um, and then when Grace and Frankie came around, I, I got lucky and he gave me the call. So.
0: So this makes me think of something is that you were talking about on um, Titanic. You were a loader and, and that's a job that doesn't totally exist anymore. Right. At, with the transition to di- how did the transition to digital affect you?
1: For me, the transition to digital was seamless because I had stopped loading really around 1998, I think. OK. Um, at the beginning, I was a focus puller, non union in New York, you know, 16 and 35. Came right. to LA, tried to do the same thing, eventually met a DP who said, Look, if you want to get into the union, I can get you in, but you got to start as a loader. So I sort of reluctantly said yes, joined the union as a loader, spent a couple of years as a loader, and then kind of went back to focus pulling as, right. as, soon, as soon as I could. Uh, so the transition to the digital didn't really affect me. As a matter of fact, I was one of the very first at least in Hollywood, uh, camera assistants to start working in, in the new format as it eventually became. We, there was a show in the – well, it was right after 9-11, as a matter of fact. They, um, it was called American Family. Oh, yeah. So, that was a PBS hour-long drama, and they had decided to shoot that on digital. And no one had done digital at the time. The cinematographer, this man named Brian Reynolds, was embracing this new technology. And he hired a crew and, and I somehow got involved and I became one of the focus pullers. So I was one of the first people I knew that I knew who was working in digital with the old uh, the old Sony F900s. And because I had done that show... Other shows were starting to experiment with it. So, I kind of became one of the handful of people you would call if you were going to do a digital show. Because they're like oh, okay. you know, they, for a number of years, I would bounce back and forth. I would do a film job, I'd do a video job, film job, right. video job. And then um, when it all transitioned, by the time it all transitioned in the, uh, it was around 2008 or 2010, yeah. things really started to, everything went digital, like overnight. Yep. I was lucky because I had been doing it for, for quite some time at this point. So
0: So do you notice things, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but like when you watch a movie, do you notice things that other people don't notice? And what, like, what are some of the, your pet peeves? Can you tell when something has been, like a lot has been done in post? To change the look of something, or yeah, I'm just curious. Are there things you see that yeah, a normal I think movie viewer I, would?
1: It's hard to know. Well, it, everything is is manipulated so much in post. It's it's really. I think it's always a, it's a given that things. So right. then it's just a question of whether I like what they did or not. You know, I've always liked movies and television shows that looked a lot more natural. um mm-hmm. You know, and and not too manipulated. Um, you know, where the blacks aren't crushed too much or 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 um right you know things like that i was such a huge fan of guys like caleb deschanel and and his early work in the in the 70s Oh, you know 80s and 90s and yeah. movies 70s 80s and 90s and and so i really am a big fan of motivated lighting and that and very natural look and and uh, yeah. things like that in terms of pet peeves And I guess this goes back to my focus pulling days off. It's it's focus issues that are always a pet peeve for me. So especially nowadays when when I see a, a focus issue that it's pretty unacceptable now. Because again, going back to the monitor, everybody has the same image. Everybody on set can see that this actor who's standing in this close up And the camera is not moving and the actor is not moving, is out of focus. (laughs) Like, it's like, how is this happening now? You know, I just don't understand. There's no excuse. There is no excuse for this to happen. And I'll just, and, and you're watching it now. Everybody has giant televisions, you know, we're all watching it in HD. And I'm like, it's like, I would absolutely kill myself if this happened to me. But if it happens once, okay. But I I've, I've watch shows where it happens the entire, the entire episode, sometimes the entire season. I'm like, oh, there's that guy again. I mean, I, there was one show, and I won't say what it was. I was so frustrated when I was watching this season of the show because it was so abysmally horrible that I had to pick <laughs> – I, I, I knew people on the show, and I called up this guy, and I said, you've got to tell me who this person is on this camera. And, and so like, this is, I was like, what is going on over there? It was just so bad. And, and sometimes it it can be really you know a subtle thing and sometimes it's out of their control and you know i i can I can hear all the dialogue that must have taken place sometimes that when I see a certain shot but um I think for me pet uh, in terms of pet peeves it, it has to be focus you know and it, and it's not just out of focus it's it's timing you know it's, it's right
2: yes um
1: i I did a show my last focus pulling job was a show called um reverie it was a it was a abc uh it was an abc hour-long show it, it they only did one season mm-hmm. and uh it was this virtual reality show where it where, uh, involved some some virtual reality and so for all of the virtual reality stuff the dp wanted to shoot with these um these uh special lenses that would open up to a, a one
2: oh wow <laughs> oh wow
1: <laughs> and and they really they they weren't very sharp when you were at a 1. Yeah,
2: you're getting to some Barry Lyndon stuff there.
1: <laughs> exactly. So so we would generally shoot at a 1.1 or maybe a 1.2. A 1.3 would be a really deep stop for us on this show. So even a wow. 50 at a, at a 1.1 was really challenging in addition to the fact that that you have very very limited depth of field. The Edges all around the edges of the frame would start to would would be soft. It would be softer. Oh, the edges of the interesting. Frame. Really, the only sharper that it would get sharper towards the middle of the frame. And it wasn't severe, but when everything is moving, um, you know, the actors are moving, right. the actors are walking and talking, or even if they're just standing still, everybody's leaning. You know, nobody sits perfectly still in a chair. They lean, They, they, you know. And then you add to that maybe the camera is moving away as well. And then in addition to that, you have this really, really shallow depth of field and you've got a lens that isn't particularly sharp from edge to edge. All of that conspires against you and it can be really challenging. So it just depends on the show. And and yeah, we have all this technology, but sometimes it's just it's just a ball buster and there's just no two ways about it.
0: Now, is there a movie or a show or something where you've watched and you've gone, wow. That was an amazing job of focus pulling.
1: Yeah, it happens a lot. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but it's usually shots. It's not usually like an entire show. Now, if you were to watch, if I were to watch a show like the one I was just talking about, the only reason I I feel like like we as a whole, as a team, did an amazing job is because I know what went into it. And I know what we're dealing with. but. As a viewer, I don't necessarily know what lenses they were on or, or what stops they were at. Or, you know, I can guess kind of based on, you know, looking at things, I can sort of guess, but you don't you never know if that's like was that just that one shot or when that one right. scene or is that how they do the whole show? But there are individual shots where, you know, I'll look at my wife and say, Wow, that one's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's like, holy cow. <laughs> Especially older movies. And see, that's what I think um Oh
0: interesting. Gets,
1: yeah. Gets forgotten because we we forget Back in the day when we were doing this, we didn't have any of this technology. You know, you'd run a tape measure, and that right. was pretty pretty much it. You know, and then the actor, you know, on a long lens, and the camera's moving, and the actor starts a steadicam shot or or something. You know, they they had deeper stops than you know. No one shot it at 1.1 right. back then. You know, the the film stocks were slower, so you tended to shoot at four stop or you know maybe. It, when five hundred, when I first got into the business, and five hundred stocks were the accepted norm under low light right. situations, you know, I was still working at like a two eight four or something like that. So it's not, it's not the deepest stop, but but, but you have not, a little
0: bit more room to play, yeah. a little
1: bit, yeah. And so you're, you know, you do close ups in standard spherical format. You know, you might do a close up on like an eighty five or maybe a one thirty five, but they generally weren't these really complicated moving shots you know they were a close-up so your, your steady cam shots and things like that were, you know you kind of do those on a 40 or a 50 and so you have a little bit more leeway you know some of these older movies and you can tell what lens are on and you can see sh- the shot develop in the dolly shot and you know that they were on film and, and right yeah sometimes I'll just think wow that one that one was a tough one so
2: you have two daughters correct Mm-hmm. do they have any interest in the film industry or television industry or do they look and go oh dad's job is so boring <laughs> um,
1: no they they neither one of them have it really any interest in that they're both creative um, they both like to write they like to draw they, they like that one they're interested in in theater arts more mostly theater arts that, that tends to that's the rule. but television movie production not so much no
2: and you know for any listeners out there that love movies and you know they, they maybe they're like just finishing up school and they're like oh i really want to do something in the hollywood industry obviously step one they have to be out there in california i mean you can't really you, your your choices are limited but i mean how you kind of you know fell into it a little bit um it sounds like the best way to go out there is if there was a job like for your wife so that there's an excuse to go out there but um you know like me and i went out there right after college and i think the biggest mistake that i made was i didn't have something lined up and it was very very hard to break in and you know struggling and i just was like yeah you know what i can't handle this town i'm out before i ever really got started but what would you say to people that they were trying to break in whatever to say that's a trade maybe they want to be an editor or whatever what are they going to do do
1: that's a tough question you have to do absolutely anything you can get your dirty paws on just anything you can do any job you can get to it doesn't matter i think if you think it's it's related to your field or not just do it because it's all about the people you're going to meet and it's all about the contacts you're going to make and and you never know you never know who is going to be working with you who's going to have be able to give you an opportunity that you're, that you're looking for. And that's really the only way to do it because it's it's the contacts that you're going to make that are going to get you your next job. And that's how it's going to be for the rest of your career is, is people that you know personally who are going to get you your next job. So it's, it's just about making contacts. And, and it's easier said than done. I can imagine. I mean, I think back to when I first got started, I, I turned down a lot of opportunities because I just thought that's not what I want to do. And uh, I I had no idea how many opportunities I missed that because I I pigeonholed myself, you know, and, and made choices that were what didn't realize the value of networking, you know, networking right. is a currency and, and I didn't realize the value of it. And I wasn't very good at it, you know, when I first got started too. So I would say that if you if you had any interest in this business at all, it's just to do it. And even if you're in your local town, wherever you are, you just do whatever you can. And just as long as you're working in in the craft in some way, shape or form, one opportunity will eventually arise and and you'll take that and it'll lead you to the next one.
2: Agree. Tony, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. And again, I know it's a tough situation. Uh, No matter what industry people are in, it's very tough. Um, But I figured that this is a show about movies and television and uh, it's a great chance for people to hear you know the insights of what's happening in your own industry and that it's a little bit of a concern and a tough time and I really do hope that things get back soon but in a safe way that you feel comfortable going to work every day or reasonably comfortable
1: yeah and I mean I think we're it's really no different than any other business it's like everybody's in the same boat and uh, we'll somehow get through it and things will Eventually get back to
2: normal. The guest today is uh, Tony Gutierrez. He's uh, assistant camera and uh, camera operator out in uh, Hollywood. And uh, the, I guess the project that you're in the middle of right now is Grace and Frankie. And hopefully you guys can get back to finish that because this is the big final season. Um, and then uh, I guess that's delayed as to when that will come back out.
1: Yeah, they haven't said when they would. Uh, they haven't said when or if we're coming back. So we're all just right sitting around waiting for an email. One one way or another.
2: Well, I guess the good news is, right? Is as, as, as viewers of these programs, uh, we're all re- recognizing the fact that there's a lot of shows we're watching now. And we're not really watching as many movies, and we we need these shows to come back. Uh, quite frankly, uh, because I, I you know I want to watch shows, and I, I have to admit I haven't seen Grace and Frankie. But now we're running out of some other shows, and we've just kind of finished binging certain things. So maybe that'll be the next on our list.
1: Let me let me ask you something. I don't not to. Not to derail real quick, but I mean, you guys are are focused primarily on feature films.
2: Oh, our show only because Teal refuses to watch shows. But but let me ask you this though:
1: What do you think movies are going to be like when this is over? I mean, oh. movie the, You know, I would be very concerned as a fan of motion pictures. Uh, yes, that that this is that we're seeing a, a seminal epic moment right now in the hundred plus years of theatrical exhibition that that may never be the same. And I mean it may be a good thing. And I was I've been thinking a lot about this, but the, the business model as as we know is is gonna be very different now. And movie theaters yeah. aren't gonna how do you how do you Keep movie theaters open if you can't put butts in seats and and sell all the concessions because, as we know, that's where they make all of their money. And right. And if you can't put butts in seats, then how how do the studios recoup their how do they make their money back? And if they can't make their money back, what happens to what happens to film production? You know, it's yeah.
2: Let me can I want to answer this because I actually have some info. Because Teal and I were talking about this on a few episodes ago about these uh, digital on-demand that the studios released of some of their, you know, I don't want to say B-list fare, but uh, stuff that they can maybe make a few quick bucks because it wasn't going to be in theaters. So, the Trolls World Tour movie, Mm -hmm. we actually specifically talked about that whether or not people would pay $20 to rent this. Well, Mm -hmm. the movie has made $100 million. Really? Yes, And that was as of like a couple of weeks ago. And because of that, Universal said that they would be doing more of these uh, even when movie theaters came back. And to that-
1: And that's when AMC said, we're not showing any more universal exactly. movies. Exactly.
2: So the war is happening oh. now because at $100 million, now the studios have that. And since in China, I think some theaters are getting ready to op- reopen. Right. They're going to start looking at that carefully. Will people come back? Because it is tough, right? I, I, as you've heard many times on this show, I like to see the movies in the theater whenever possible. Exactly. I got- Word just yesterday from my favorite theater, the Somerville Theater in Massachusetts, that they have canceled for now the 70 millimeter film festival, which makes sense because oh, it was wow. supposed to be in a couple of weeks in Massachusetts is nowhere near ready uh, to reopen. It's been canceled, not till the fall, not till it's till next year, 2021. Right. They're already working with the studios to get all the same titles and everything. But I mean, this is a theater where they're planning to come back. Uh, but they recognizing that it may not be in full force this year. Mm-mm.
0: Well, even you know Texas is reopening their theaters this week, but they're limited to twenty five percent occupancy. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: How 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 can they stay afloat if they're only able to have?
0: 25% they can't. Enough? That's the thing. It's it's not sustainable.
2: Yeah. It's a really uh, these are big mysteries, and yeah, for me, I actually envision. Uh, a future. And this is why I've spent so much time, uh, mostly with my oldest kid, because the youngest one is just not into movies the way my oldest was. I guess I got to my oldest early enough. <laughs> but I want him to experience movies in the theater because I recognize that his generation could be the last, and there won't be as many of them, to tell their kids, Oh, I went yeah. to the movies in the theater. I saw yeah. something projected on film. You know, my son. He Most of the kids that he goes to school with, I would wager, because we live in, in Vermont, uh, I would wager that none of them have seen a movie projected on film, whereas he has in <laughs> and, and multiple right. years. But that's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it, which means the generation after him, you'd have very few people unless – Theaters become museums, right? That yeah. people will go. I think film will exist for for good 20 or 30 years, but maybe more in the museum setting where people would see things projected uh, on 35 millimeter film. But yeah. now even just getting to see a movie, you know, again, to do today's kids, does that generation care about going into the theater? I think they don't. Probably I don't not. Think they
0: do either. No, they just watch YouTube videos on their phone.
1: It's true. That's exactly
2: right. It's not even a joke. Like, like about probably a year ago when you'd make that crack deal, I would think you're oh, just being funny. But I now have kids that that's what they do.
0: <laughs> that's what they that's do. That's what they do. That's what they do. You
2: know, so, I mean, I don't know, Tony. Um, I know I'm, I, I would be sad if that's how I'm going to have to, like, oh, I'm going to have to pay $20 to see James Bond on my screen. And I guess- Let me ask you this.
1: Yeah. Could you envision a world where- where we see better movies. And and here's the reason, here's what I'm thinking. What if, I, I don't know if we're, we're kind of beyond what we were going to talk about, so I saw, you know, we, we, this is all.
2: No, this is perfect in the show because we always get way off target. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but but if the studios can no longer afford to spend $300 million on Fast and Furious 8.
2: Right. I see what you're saying.
1: Are they not going to make, just throw money at these tentpole movies? Right. You know, and instead be forced, okay, well, movie theaters themselves dwindle in numbers. Let's say that, you know, the number let's say they go down to twenty-five percent. Seventy-five percent of the movie theaters as we know them are gone. They fold right. and whatever. And and of those twenty-five percent that are left, they can only seat, you know, half of the number of seats that they're, they're you know, because this thing lingers, yeah. this pandemic lingers for another year or two, or or maybe it mutates and it gets worse. Let's just envision the worst case scenario, right? You know, entertainment has to keep going. You know, we need to, you know, the economy has to keep chugging along. Can you envision a world where it's like, well, now now the people who are going to see these movies are movie people like us? Right. They're, they're, right. And they're, so they, the movies that are exhibited aren't the tentpole movies that continue, but they're not, they don't cost $300 million and they're all streaming. And instead, yeah. you know...
2: Well, because, you know, I just watched a movie. I haven't seen a lot recently. But on HBO, they purchased a film at a festival. I don't know what it is. It was, I guess, intended to be a theatrical release. And it was called Bad Education. And yeah. it features uh, Wolverine there, a uh, huge actress And it's the kind of film that maybe 20 years ago, you would see in the theater. It would be a big drama, probably come out in the fall. And now... Even though it shot two, three, five, it has kind of a cinematic look, it's something that you don't expect to go to the theater to see. And, of course, it didn't. But it's a great movie. Um, It's enjoyable. But even me now, I'm so kind of reconditioned to how I see films in the theater. And I say, I don't know if this was a film that I would have seen In the theater, I mean, I think of The Irishman. It was the reason why I I found a way in a brief, you know, to see that three and a half hour movie because my local theater was playing it, and I couldn't believe it, and I really wanted to see to see it in the theater make a difference than seeing it on Netflix, and it did, and it didn't. It's kind of strange, right? Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think we're starting to see like with long form, uh, like, you know, 10 episode series, uh, which I like way better than a 22 episode series, by the way. Um, we're seeing a lot of different things happen on our streaming services. And, and you know, it's just... For the old codgers like myself who loved sitting in a theater, not being distracted by my phone and, you know, the magic of the flicker and seeing things that were actually shot on film. I mean, I have to just recognize the fact that I am I am in the minority.
0: Well, and and yeah, like Tony was saying, we're sort of at this seminal transition moment that things could look very different on the other side of this and I I think it's a really interesting point about those tentpole movies like I just that Mulan movies they spent 300 million on
2: they're starting to think about putting it on Disney plus it's not wow it's actually being considered but you mean Disney talk about perfect timing for them they they had like a two-year or three-year plan to get to so many subscribers they got to it in six months Yeah. And there's a lot of freebies this year because like, I'm not, I I didn't have to pay for it because I got a new phone. However, because of things like the Mandalorian, like, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have kids that want to see all these Disney movies. Right. But, uh, my my wife's like we're signing up when it comes next year because I got to see season two of the Mandalorian. So they got yeah. you know they hooked me. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so if it makes a, a monetary sense, like if it's a great incentive to get more people to subscribe, they may say, all right, Mulan is going to get put on there.
0: But you know that was also a movie that they were planning on having a big box office in China.
2: Well, yeah, maybe they'll release it there. You know, see how that's doing yeah. because. Uh, I, it's just, it's all such a mess. I mean, I talk about a show that we've named called Stuff We've Seen and it's all, it was all bent about the theatrical experience <laughs> and now we have to, you know, we we have to rethink even what we do as far as like, are we going to get True. to see him? I talked to my son last night, I said, I'm not sure that you and I are going to get to see a movie in the theater again this year. Yeah. And that's shocking to me. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm going to be 50 years old in June and the fact that this could be the end, I mean, I took a picture The other day at the strip mall where my local theater is, the one that I hate, and I took a picture of it so I could capture what were the movies that were playing right before they shut down because I don't know if they're ever going to be back. You know, the longer this goes and something like the theaters, it's like restaurants. Restaurants, by and large, they operate like they're they're, they're barely making it, most restaurants. So, you know, to be closed a week would shut most of them down. Imagine how many of them are just gone for good now
0: yep they, and that's exactly what's going to happen yeah
1: you touched on the the small the small theater chains the small independent theater chains that are not the nationwide chains you know those are the ones that will vanish first yeah you know, the, the, the independent the, the small boutique independent ones you know they'll go of course and then but yeah this is all like when i was in san antonio when i was working as a in in high school the local theater chain there was was one that was just they had a, they had a chain of theaters, but I, they was pretty much just the San Antonio area, you know, so. Right. Yeah. I think those those guys would would um, would definitely go first.
2: But, you know, I do think of this. I mean, of course, you know, the film industry isn't what it was in its heyday. And I'm talking heyday like in the 30s when the, the Great Depression mm-hmm. was in force and everybody went to the movies because it was the one great escape. But think about this. Movies were around and they were just emerging, even though they were silent. And that was uh, 1918, 1919. And there was millions who died from that pandemic. And yet people still ended up going to the theater so uh you know if we think if we think that they're not going to go to things uh like they're not going to show up for big sporting events and everything i mean you you have people that are are like running around protesting they want to go back to work now they don't seem to care so uh my my gut tells me that you put in the right movie and people are going to show up because they just have this invincibility feeling that nothing is going to take them down
0: Right, but will enough of them show up to cover the... I don't know, know. we're going to find out. To cover $200 million,
2: right? Tony, I'm thinking that you got in the right game by being involved in TV because we need those productions. I mean, I'm telling you, we need. Uh, I was so excited about the new season of Fargo and they had like two episodes. They had a film. So now I can't get that yet. So I'm dying yeah, for them right. to get back to film that.
0: I, <laughs> My daughter's freaking out about Stranger Things.
2: Well, there's another show. I mean, there's so many shows that we count on. And we're fine with the gap of time waiting for them to come back. But now, right. you know, this is really going to halt things. So believe me, when I say that people need Hollywood, they really do, because right now we're stuck in the house. And it's all the things that you guys and gals do, uh, Tony, that is really going to help keep us sane. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree. I thank you for your service, Tony. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We're all in this together. <laughs> I, I, I'm so sick of those ads. If another, another car company tells me we're all in this together, I'm gonna like lose it. I know. Uh, all right. Well, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get you guys uh, on, on your way. And again, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been really great, and just keeps reminding me that we need to have more guests on the show because they offer some unique things uh, that we don't normally get when it's just Teal and I. Well, yeah. thank you
1: it was it was a lot of fun i really
0: oh yeah it. great to have much. you sorry um
2: all right well hey everybody remind you that uh stuff you can find all our old episodes there um or you can subscribe to uh, apple Podcasts, spotify uh, tune in and then you can get all the, the back episodes our last episode was sort of a special one where you could uh, play the episode while watching Red Dawn on Netflix and you can hear our commentary it's uh, sort of an experiment but if you you know are interested in something like that you can check that episode out uh, but again uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com that's always great uh, and then we appreciate your listenership Tony thank you for stopping by thank, thank you. you very much and Teal, thank you for stopping by of, too. Of course. <laughs> All right, everybody. Till next time. Bye bye.